you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your greatness. God, thank you just even for that uh, humbling reminder that My words aren't perfect, your words are. You always mean what you say, you always say what you mean, you always speak with perfect clarity. And so God, I pray for strength and weakness today. I pray that what would be taking place right now would not merely be a man talking about God, but God speaking through a man, through his word. And so Lord, I pray that we would hear your word with faith, Lord, that we would hear your word and that it would produce fruit of obedience, that it would produce humility, that it would produce joy, God, that it would produce love in us, God. We need to hear from you. So God, we pray that you would lead us. We pray that you would speak to us and help us, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before you're seated, um, there's a red Dodge Caravan. ARX045, you're going to want to move uh, your vehicle uh, so you can go outside and enjoy the nice weather and uh, the rest of us can uh, shake one another's hand, tell them spring is here and God is great. So find someone right now, say spring is here and God is great. But no, no one else can go out for a walk right now. All right, well if you're new with us, we're so glad to have you here and uh, even if you've been uh, coming to Harvest for a long time, you may not know where, we, where, we've, where we've come from. And uh, the first Harvest Bible Chapel ever was planted in uh, 1988 by a Canadian uh, in Chicago named James McDonald and a group of about 12 or 18 other people. And uh, they became a vibrant, life-giving church and began planting churches. And uh, fast forward a little bit to uh, 2003 and God established Harvest Bible Chapel Oakville and uh, Pastor Robbie Simons uh, is the pastor of that church. And Lindsay and I had the privilege of living in Oakville. I was on staff there for uh, several years. It's always just important to recognize where we've come from and how the fruitfulness that we're experiencing is really just an overflow of those who have gone before and trusted God. And, and we're benefiting uh, from that. And uh, uh, Robbie Simons just wrote his first book. And uh, it's called Passion Cry. It's a really helpful, encouraging book. And it's been a while since I've thrown something in church. And so I'm going to give away uh, some free copies because there's an illustration in the, uh, there's an illustration in the book. Whoa, everyone is, I need eye contact. Is everyone paying attention? I don't need any lawsuits right now. So, now the reason why, the reason why I wanted to uh, give away some copies is because there's a really helpful illustration uh, in that book and I recommend that you pick up a copy uh, for yourself if one didn't fall in your lap today. Um, it's, it's, it has to do with this idea of, of this changes everything. And uh, it's, uh, it's an illustration involving one of these uh, champagne pyramids. Now, I've never seen one of these close up, but I've seen video clips and that sort of thing, that you arrange the glasses just right. And when the champagne is poured in in the very top glass, that um, it overflows into the next one and then into the next one and then into the next one. And all of our lives have been beautifully designed like this, like this crystal pyramid. That God has designed our lives to be full 
and to be abundant and to be overflowing. And they're arranged just so, but we miss out when we aim for a lower glass. And what this series is about is that when you get that top glass, when you understand that that Jesus Christ is God in flesh and that he died on the cross to draw you to himself and to give you eternal life, when you understand that he's given you a new heart and a new identity, once that first cup begins to overflow, it overflows into every area of our lives. And so we spent the first three It's just filling up that first cup, making sure that we understand who Jesus is and how he's given us a new heart and a new identity. And now we're going to see it spill over into all of these other areas. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the cups that is closest to the top is our money. It's not an easy thing to talk about. It's It's not an easy thing to think about. But Jesus said very close to that first cup, one of the first things, if Jesus has changed your life, he will change your money. And so today, in the series of This Changes Everything, it's This Changes My Money. You can open up your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible with you today, just put up your hand or holler at them. We want to make sure everyone has a chance uh, to follow along. And so uh, thanks so much to our ushers for making God's Word available. The context of the book of Timothy is it's Paul writing to Timothy, and Timothy was a young pastor of a growing church in a city called Ephesus, and there was a number of challenges that Timothy was facing, and money seemed to be coming up a whole lot. When, when Paul was telling Timothy about appointing elders, he said, hey, make sure that they're not a lover of money. And then when he was talking about looking after widows and orphans in the church, money again was front and center in his discussion. And as we come to chapter 6, Paul had just been speaking about false teachers. And he said one of the telltale signs of a false teacher is that they love money. They want money. In fact, the only reason why they're teaching God's word is to try to get more money. And so we're going to uh, be starting at chapter 6, verse 6 in the, verse, in the book of 1 Timothy. But I want you to look at the last few words of verse 5. He's completing this discussion about the false teachers. He says that they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The false teachers were imagining that godliness, and for them it was simply the appearance of godliness, the, the acting like a Christian and talking like a Christian That that was a way to make more money. And we see this all over our world today. We see this in North America. We see this in Africa. We see this in Asia. We see this in South America. We see preachers, teachers, who are using godliness as a means of gain. And so that's the context in which which Paul is speaking. And then he says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. So he says, if they're seeking gain, that's fine, but they're seeking the wrong gain. Godliness does lead to gain, but it doesn't lead to the kind of financial gain that these false teachers are saying. He's saying that it leads to a whole other kind of gain. It is a great gain, but the missing ingredient is the ingredient of contentment, because these false teachers were filled with with greed. Their hearts had not truly been transformed. The top glass wasn't overflowing, and because of that, the, the, the rest of the pyramid was all out of sync. Their teaching and their lives were all messed up because they were focused so much on money and not 
on Christ. And so from 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, we're going to see three things, three indicators that your heart has truly been transformed, three things that happen with the way that you relate to your money that are evidence of the transformed heart, things that all Christians ought to be doing as it relates to money. Here's the first one. We are to recognize the danger of greed. We are to recognize the danger of greed. Greed can cause you to believe false teaching. False teaching like godliness leads to gain. That's not true, but it's an attractive, it's an attractive lie. And so we need to be aware and recognize the danger of greed. So Paul clarifies in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? Simply being satisfied with what you have. The opposite of contentment is greed or covetousness, wanting what someone else has, not being satisfied with what you have. And he, he unpacks what contentment is in verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. I've had the privilege of seeing a, a, our, our four boys uh, born. Uh, none of them came with anything. Uh, none of them came with keys to a Land Rover and a pair of Air Jordans. That, that just didn't happen. They, they brought in nothing. And when you, so when we come into this world, we have nothing. And when we go out of this world, we will have nothing materially speaking. John Piper so aptly put it. He said, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. What you gain here stays here. And so we need to understand, if we're, go- if we're going to be content, it's not just that you are going to, okay, I'm going to decide be, to be content. I'm content now. I'm just going to be happy with what I have. No. Contentment has to flow from a focus on eternity. And then it also has to flow from a focus on simplicity. So contentment involves eternity and simplicity. Looking beyond this life and then looking at this life with an eye towards a simplicity. It says in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, when he talks about food and clothing, he's talking about a floor, not a ceiling. Some people, some people would wrongly read this passage, especially in the Middle Ages and still today in the church. Some people would read food and clothing as a ceiling, not a floor. That Christians can't own or have anything more than food or clothing. You can't go beyond that point. If you, if you accumulate for yourself more than food or clothing, you're sinning. It's not a ceiling, it's a floor. It's the foundation for what contentment is. Don't be content to starve. Don't be content with nakedness. But if you have food and clothing, the Greek word is is covering, which also refers to, to shelter. If you have the basic necessities, then we are to be content with those things. John Stott puts it really clearly. Paul is not defining the maximum that is permitted to the believer, but the minimum that is compatible with contentment. It's not, it's not a ceiling, it's a floor. It's not a maximum, it is a minimum for a contentment. But we are all in danger when luxuries become necessities. You gotta know the difference between Michael Kors and Joe Fresh. You gotta know the difference. You gotta know the difference between caviar and craft dinner. One is a necessity, one is just the, the bait, and we need to be happy with those things. One is a luxury, not inherently sinful or wrong, but if you start to think that you can't live without that, that becomes a huge problem for us. And so we need to be careful about the danger of greed. 
He goes on to say in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you see the chain reaction that's there? They fall into temptation and then a trap and then tragedy. It says they they fall into temptation. When you give yourself over to the love of money, you are inviting an army of temptation to, to raid your life. If you embrace and live with contentment, you are holding those armies at bay. When we give ourselves to the love of money, we are are opening ourselves up to temptation. It comes with temptation, then a trap. See that in verse 9? Into a snare. It's a trap. The love of money leads people into a trap. If you were to leave Gage School today and head east on Queen Street before you get to the 410, you would pass probably half a dozen, at least one dozen cash, money, loan shark, pretend to be banks. They all have yellow in their sign. I don't know why. (laughs) It's a trap. It's a trap. You you think you need money and and things are really desperate and so you go to this person and like, no one else will give me a loan but this guy gave me a loan. What a nice guy. He's not a nice guy. It's a trap. It's like the little mouse in your house being like, oh, these nice humans, they left me a piece of cheese. It's attached to something that's going to kill you. (laughs) Temptation, then trap, and then tragedy. Here's the tragedy. Look what it says. Into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Here's the first strategy. That when you desire wealth, it leads to more desire. When you get what you want, it's never enough. You're walking around the mall, you see someone with a nice shirt, you're like, man, I really got to get a shirt like that. That guy looks like he looks so cool with that shirt. So you go and get the shirt, but then you realize, now that I got the shirt, it looks really weird with the style of pants I have. So then you go back in the store, you get a pair of pants, and you're walking out with your pair of pants, but then you see yourself in a profile in the mirror, it's like, these shoes do not go with the pants or the shirt. So then you're back in, you, you, you get yourself a pair of shoes, and you're walking out the mall, you're like, oh, that's a nice shirt. And the whole thing starts over again. Desire leads to more desire. We think, oh, if only I had this. If only I had that. That's the first part of the tragedy, but it goes even further. It says that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's a huge loss that comes with desiring money. The first thing, the the irony is that when you desire to have more, so often you end up with less. When you focus on what you don't have, chances are you're going to do something that's going to result in you losing what you already had. And here's the other thing that leads to ruin and destruction. When God is your master, God will always tell you to tell the truth, no matter what. That's just God's policy. Just tell the truth. When you tell the truth, that results in integrity. That results in a reputation. That results in trust. That results in people believe what you say. But if money is your master and getting money is the end game, money will command you to lie. It's just a matter of time. That if you seek after money and want it more than anything, money is a master that commands people to lie. You will end up lying. You will end up losing something. You will end up getting caught or having to confess it. And then your integrity is ruined. Then your trust is ruined. Then your reputation is ruined. 
Now, not to say that that can't be rebuilt, but we need to understand that that is one of the consequences of giving in to the love of money, whether it's dishonesty with our other family members with how we're spending our money, dishonesty with our employer with how we're spending our time, dishonesty with our customer about the product that we're offering to them. At some point along the line, there's going to be ruin and destruction if we focus on accumulating wealth. And it says in verse 10, he sums it up, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I want to clarify what's being said here because so often people quote this verse as saying this, that money is the root of all evil. And that's simply not true. If you take a close look at what is being said in verse 10, it doesn't say money. It says, first of all, the love of money. The love of money is the root of all evil, not just money itself. Money is neutral. Money is a tool. But if you love it, if you give it your heart, it will command you to do evil things. So the love of money is the root of all evil. Also, it, 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 people say it's the root, that at the cause of everything evil, it is root. It's not the only reason. So money is Sorry, the love of money is a root, and it's not the root of all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evils. Money is not responsible. Listen, money, the love of money is responsible for a lot of bad things in this world, but it's not responsible for everything. And so we can't give money too much credit. We need to understand that it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. If you were to look at the fruit of evil that's happening all around the world and you are to trace it down through the branches and the trunk, there is a whole subsection that is being fed by the root of the love of money. There's some other roots though as well. So the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is why Jesus said in Luke 12, he said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Another translation says, watch out, beware, look out for greed, be aware of the danger that is coming your way as it relates to the love of money. It, 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 it is the cause of all kinds of evil. Money leads us into envy and jealousy, greed and idolatry, lying and dishonesty, pride and arrogance, haughtiness, theft, stealing, cheating, fraud, blackmail, workaholism. All of these kinds of evils are produced from the root of the love of money. But Jesus says one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what we need to be reminded of contentment, being thankful for what we have and knowing that there is more to life than simply living for money. Then I love, I love how he goes on in verse 11. He says, but as for you, man of God, but as for you, man of God, he finished off in verse 10 saying that through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's, Paul's talking about people he knew. He's talking about people who were following Jesus and loved him and then slowly were given over to the love of money and it brought so much pain into their life. But then Peter writes to Timothy and he says, but you, O oh man of God, flee from these things. But you, O oh men and women of God of Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton, and that is not a title that's just reserved for prophets or special people. 
You are a woman of God. You are a man of God. You have been called into his service. You are his son. You are his daughter. Your identity is found in him. You are a man of God. You are a woman of God. You don't have to wear some special robe or a weird-looking hat in order to be called a man of God or a woman of God. You need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And we are called to something different. We have that top cup being filled, and we need to understand that, that we are called to something higher and something better and something greater. So here's the second thing that we need to understand in order to have our money set free, in order to have the way that we view money changed by the reality of the gospel. The first is to recognize the danger of greed. The second is to prioritize our relationship with God to prioritize our relationship with God. The answer is not just to, okay, I'm just gonna make sure that I don't get too greedy and I'm gonna focus on contentment. That's not the answer. The answer is to focus on God. So he says, but as for you, O man of God, and hear that as though he's speaking to you, you, O man of God, or woman of God, he's he's gonna tell them to do three different things. And, and these are the three things that we need to do in order to prioritize our relationship with God. He says, flee these things and pursue righteousness. That's the first. This, this fleeing and this pursuing. In the Christian life, it's not just that we stay away from sin. It's that we run towards what is good. There's always a combination. It's never just flee. It's always flee and pursue it's not just stop focusing on money, it's on start, start focusing on who God is. So he says, flee these things, flee all of this greed, flee everything that leads to this ruin and destruction, the trap and the, and the temptation and the tragedy, flee all of that. And then he says, and pursue righteousness and godliness. And we pursue righteousness and godliness, understanding our identity in Christ because that first cup is filled up, that we have been justified that we have been declared righteous and that we are one of God's children and that when we pursue righteous, we're now in the process of sanctification, allowing our behavior and the way that we live and our life live out what God has already permanently done in us. So our pursuit isn't like, oh, if I only had righteousness. No, we have righteousness. That's who we are. That's who God has declared us to be but we are pursuing it with so much effort because we want our lives to reflect what has already happened in our hearts. So we pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love growing in these virtues. We pursue these things. Steadfastness, that refers to endurance under a difficult circumstance. And then going right along with it is the word gentleness, which is endurance with difficult people. Sometimes hard things happen to us. Sometimes difficult people come into our lives. We require steadfastness. We require gentleness in order to get through them. That's the first thing he tells us to do. Here's the second one, verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. We're called to fight. And in some ways, as a Christian, as a Christian we know that the most important battle has already been won. But we are still called upon to fight. And it is from the impenetrable fortress of our justification where we fight the battle of sanctification. That we know the most important battle has been won and that gives us courage and strength to fight and to pursue because our heart has been changed. Fight the good fight. No, it's the fight of the faith. It's fight to keep on believing what is true about God. You see, 
The image of loving money, it was equated with a root. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Similarly, belief in other parts of the Bible is equated as a root. There's a root of unbelief. There's a root of bitterness. There's the good soil that takes deep roots. And it's the faith that grows. And so part of doing the fight of faith is getting out our, kind of odd things to fight with, but to get out our gardening tools, to get out our, our shovel and our spade and our saw and our axe and severing that root of the love of money and then nurturing and watering that root of faith and allowing that to grow. It's a fight to do that, to keep on believing. Um, I read a book review this week from, a, uh, from an author named Melissa Kruger, and she said this about coveting. Coveting does not result because we don't have something. We covet because we fail to believe something. That root of the love of money grows in our lives when the root of unbelief in our lives is suffering. When we're not believing the right things about who God is, that he is our savior, that he is our father, that he is our provider. And when we start thinking, well, I'm on my own here and God's not going to look after me and God's not really for me, then we start to neglect the root of faith and that root of the love of money begins to grow in our lives. So we need to prioritize our relationship with God. We've got to flee and pursue We've got to fight the good fight, and then I love this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We've got to take hold. Take hold of eternal life. When we talk about Jesus changes everything, it's so important that we don't just think that Jesus changed one thing. We always think that Jesus changed one thing. He changed the place where I go when I die. And I'm going to go to heaven. And that, he changed that one thing. Listen, because he changed that one thing, everything changes. And eternal life is not something we're looking forward to in the future. Eternal life starts now. And if you're going after the love of money, you're missing out on what God wants to do in your life right now. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly in John 10.10. 10. And we're supposed to take hold of that abundant life. Here in the passage, it says, take hold of eternal life. Jesus defined what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Knowing God is eternal life. It's not that, he doesn't say, this is eternal life, that they will know you. It's eternal life that they know you. That, that it's not something that's coming in the future. It's not something that we're looking forward to. You can know God and be in relationship with him right now. Take hold of him. Let go of your money. Take hold of him. Live for him. So take hold of the eternal life. He says, this is, this is to which you were called. You were called there in verse 12. God invited us to him. We were running so far from him, and he called us by name and said, come back to me. I'm coming after you. We were called. And then it says, we made the good confession. You see, God calls us, but then he includes us when we become followers, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So God calls us, we make a confession. Confession isn't just admitting that you're a sinner. Confession is just declaring what's true. When you confess that you're a sinner, you're declaring this true, I'm a sinner. But confession is so much more that. You're confessing who God is. You're confessing what God has done for you. 
And so what's being referred to here when he says the, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, this is probably his baptism where he got together with the people uh, from his church and uh, around some water and he gave the good confession. He said, this is who God is. This is what he's done in my life. This is who I am as a result. And now I'm going under the water to s- symbolize my full identity with Christ. I'm buried with him. I'm rise with him. I'm cleansed like this water is symbolizing cleansing all because of him. That's the, that's the good confession. Then in verse 13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God. It's only a few times when Paul tells people, I charge you. This is when Paul is being more serious than, he can po- than you can possibly imagine. This is grabbing you by the collar, finger in the face. If you've missed everything I've said right now, you need to hear this. He's saying, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So notice how we make a good confession because Jesus, before Pilate, made a good confession. What confession did Jesus make? Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, yeah, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And he said, I'm here to bear witness of the truth, that Jesus made the confession of who he was and what he came to do. And that's the, we make that confession as well. This is who Jesus is. And this is what he came to do. And this is the difference that it made in my life. And here's what he wants him to do. So he gives this charge. Verse 14, here's the instruction. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep the commandment. That's referring to the gospel. That's referring to the teaching of of Christianity. Of what it means to follow him. To love God and to love your neighbor. It, it, it mean, it, it, it's everything about being saved by grace through faith. Keep that commandment. Keep that teaching. And how are they supposed to keep it? It's supposed to be unstained and free from reproach. What would ever bring a stain on the gospel? What would ever bring reproach on the gospel? It would be the love of money. It would be that Paul doesn't want Timothy to fall into the trap that these other false teachers have fallen into. He's saying you need, to, you need to stay true. You also need to put these false teachers in their place and tell them that they're wrong so that the people that they're listening to can keep the commandment unstained as well and above reproach. Verse 15 says he will display, the, talk about the appearing of Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now Paul just starts worshiping. God is the blessed and only sovereign. Sovereign means in control. God is the only one that is in control. And you need to understand that, that as you are trying to develop that root of faith and trying to destroy that root of the love of money, you need to understand that the one who is caring for you, the one who has promised to provide for you, is the one who is in complete control. He is the only sovereign. We talk about, oh, the almighty dollar. Not true. Money is not sovereign. God is almighty. He is sovereign. It says he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He is in charge of all things. He owns all things. He is more than qualified to look after you. And you have more reasons than you can imagine to be content and to be filled with faith that he will never leave you or forsake you. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And then he just goes off in verse 16. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He just, he just starts talking about all these incredible attributes about God. He's invisible. He's, he's immortal. He's eternal. 
He's, all, he's holy. No one, no one can enter into his presence. He's unapproachable, and yet he has approached you. And he has said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to come to know me. And, and this is who we are. This is our identity. And this is what Paul is calling Timothy to. And then he says to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. To God belongs honor. And in all of our dealings, in our dealings with our money, in our dealings with everything else in our lives, our goal should be, how can I honor God? And so Paul sort of lifts Timothy up, lifts up his eyes to see who God is and how majestic and awesome he is. And then he says, and this God it deserves to be honored. And then he brings us back down to earth. And he speaks about one particular group of people. And how they can honor this incredible God with the situation that they find themselves in. Verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's the third thing that we need to do if our hearts are changed. We've got to recognize the danger. We've got to prioritize our relationship. And lastly, we've got to exercise the privilege of stewardship. Exercise the privilege of stewardship. He says, as for the rich. And notice how he says, as for the rich in this present age. Because there's going to be no U-Haul behind their hearse. They can't take anything with them. So he's just reminding them, the people who are hearing this, the people who are rich, they need to understand that they're only rich once. And, and this is, this, this everything will change in the next age. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, which means not to look down on people. You see, the danger that comes with wealth is to actually bring about this false sense of superiority. To think that you're better than people who have, who have less than you. To think that you're somehow smarter or a harder worker or people like you more because you have these things. Listen, it's God who has provided those things. And it's only by his grace that you find yourself in the situation you are. Because he's the one who provides everything. So he says, don't, don't, don't give in to this false sense of superiority. He also says, don't give in to this false sense of security. He also says, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that you're secure and that everything's going to be fine just because your bank account is full. That can change. And so he says, to set their hope on God and then who richly provides everything to enjoy. Everything that we have has been provided by God. Everything that we have. I really struggle with, should we call the title of this message, This Changes My Money? Because really, what really happens when that first cup gets, gets filled in your life is you realize this isn't my money. God is the only sovereign. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It all belongs to him, not to me. So really, the first change that happens is we realize it's not my money. It's his money. But that's where the whole concept of stewardship comes in. It's not a word that we use every day, but it's an it's a important concept in the New Testament. It's the idea of looking after and being responsible for property that belongs to someone else and God has provided us with things and it is our job to be good stewards of it and notice how he says he provides us with everything to enjoy 
He provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, I made it my aim this week that by the grace of God, as I was praying, as I was preparing, that I was going to deliver a message on money that was going to result in no one feeling guilty. Because it's just, it's just so easy, you know, to share statistics about things that are happening around the world. It's just so easy for, for me to sort of pick and assume how people are spending their money and kind of make people feel guilty about those sorts of things. I want you to have a, a clear vision of who God is. I also want you to have a clear vision that he is a provider and that he has provided things for you to enjoy and that I want you to wrestle with if you need to feel guilty about something. I'm not going to do that for you. I'm going to tell you that God is a good God who's provided everything that you need and has provided it for you for your enjoyment. You think, well, Ted, isn't that kind of just leaving the the door wide open? I mean, when do you cross the line between enjoying something that God has given and thanking him for that? When do you draw the line between enjoyment and idolatry? I mean, it just seems kind of vague. Like one second you're enjoying something, the next second it's like, my precious. How do you... How do you know when you've crossed over that line? Listen, that's not up for me to tell you. Sure, it would be real simple and cut and dry and say, you know what, a Christian can't own a car that costs this much, a Christian can't wear these kind of clothes, a Christian can't do this, a Christian can't do that. But we're called to fight the good fight of faith. And we are called to walk by faith and be thankful and enjoy the things that God has given to us and to thank him for them. Just earlier in the letter, just uh, turn the page back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4. Some of these false teachers were also saying, you know, that people shouldn't get married or any of that sort of thing. And Paul's like, That's, that couldn't be further from the truth. He says, for everything, 1 Timothy 4 verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer. And so we need to think about the things in our life, even the luxuries in our life that we know we can do without. And there's nothing wrong with at a time and in moderation and with prayer and with thanksgiving to enjoy those things. But also to hold them with an open hand because they're to be received with thanksgiving. And knowing that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And we're supposed to say, blessed be the name of the Lord no matter what. And so there's nothing wrong. You don't need to feel guilty about the car that you get into on your way home from church. You don't need to feel discouraged if you're, if you're walking or doing transit on the way. Listen, God has provided all of these things for us to enjoy. But there's also a significant responsibility there's a significant responsibility on all of us because we know, we know from, the, um, from uh, our travel around the world or even some of us have family and friends living in other parts of the world, we know that there are millions upon millions of people who are looking at us and think that 1 Timothy 6 applies to us. We think 1 Timothy 6 applies to someone else. As for the rich, yeah, that's someone else. That's not me. We have a tremendous responsibility as wealthy people, comparatively speaking, in this world to enjoy what God has given us with thanksgiving, but also to steward it and to be responsible. And so we're not supposed to look down and be superior. We're not supposed to have this false sense of security. Then look at verse 18. Here's what we're supposed to do. Here's what rich and wealthy people are supposed to do. They are to do good and to be rich 
in good works. He hasn't said anything about giving money yet. Just to do good and to be rich in good works. Here's why he's saying that. The, what, what differentiated a person of wealth from a person, just a regular person or a poor person in Timothy's day was leisure. Someone was considered rich if they didn't have to work for a living. If their money was just stockpiled, they inherited it or they earned it before, and now they could work if they wanted to, but they don't have to work. That was what a rich person was. Someone who wasn't rich was just someone who simply needed to work for a living. Now, most of us find ourselves in the situation where we need to work for a living. But as we look at our society, we're actually a conglomeration of the two. We work for a living, but we don't have to work all the time. We live in a society that enforces and embraces and protects leisure. We're supposed to be, it's the law that employers are supposed to give employees time off to rest throughout the week and have a vacation and all of these things. The working class in, in Timothy's day didn't have that. It was the rich were just hanging out and relaxing all the time. And it was the, the rank and file worker who never had a day off. When they went to church, when they got together, it was after work or before work. Every day was a work day. And, and so we need, to, we need to understand that we have this responsibility. In some way, we are working for a living. But in other ways, we, other ways, we have this opportunity for leisure. And we need to make sure this is, isn't just a message about treasure. This is a measure, message about time. That's what he's getting at, to do good, to be rich in good works. And so all of us, rich or poor, wealthy or struggling, have a responsibility to take the time that God has given us especially our leisure time, and to use it for good, for the good of our community, for the good of our family, for the good of our church, and for the proclamation of the gospel. And so we all need to be rich in good works. And then he starts, now he talks about their money. He says, to be generous and ready to share. Generous and ready to share. That someone who's wealthy, someone who's well off should be generous. Should not be sort of a miser who's always counting their money and always uh, really reluctant to give someone a, a handout or a gift or to, to bail someone out when they're in need. Generosity is supposed to characterize us as believers. And then it says ready to share. Ready to share. Now, for the wealthy person, all their money is all piled up and they could share at any moment. They needed to be ready. They could just be ready to share with anyone. For most of us, being ready to share requires effort. And here's what we all need to be conscious of in our own personal finances as it relates to the gospel, is some of us right now are living that here's the money coming in and here's the money going out. You are not ready to share if there's less money coming in than money that's going out, if you owe more than you earn, that's a problem. You're not ready to share. You're ready to explode. Others of us think, oh, you know, that's not me. But others of us have our what we earn and what we spend are exactly the same. And there's no readiness to share. An email comes in from a friend in our small group who's going on a, who's going on a missions trip and we've got, we've got nothing to give. Or a, a, a special offering at the church or something. There's, there's nothing to give. Or your neighbor needs help or a family member overseas calls you and asks you. There's nothing to give. 
Because you're not ready to share. All of us need to try to work to getting towards a point where, and some of us, listen, we're so far like this, we need to believe by faith that God can, can bring these back into order. Not that our earning is the same as our spending, but that our earning is actually higher than our spending. So it's not just earning and spending, it's earning, spending, and giving. And that there is a margin in our income. And there is, there is space there to be ready to give. And that's what Paul was charging the rich people in Timothy's church to be ready for. And that's what we need to be ready for. To be ready to give. Now, all of these are words who are given to the rich. These are specific instructions given to the rich. Now some people teaching in the church today would say, as for the rich, tell them to stop being rich. Some people equate poverty with holiness, that the, if you only have food and clothing, then you're a super spiritual person. And that's, that's wrong. Now, other people would totally misinterpret this idea of enjoying what God has provided and think that every Christian should be, should be rich. There's the, this emphasis on poverty that says every Christian should be poor, and there's this emphasis on prosperity that says every Christian should be rich. Listen, the message of the New Testament is not that poverty is better than riches or riches is better than poverty, but that Christ is better than both. And that he is our focus and our aim. Amen. That's worth clapping for. That's why in verse 19 he says, Thus storing up treasure for themselves. Storing up treasure. Paul, he's, he's quoting the Lord Jesus here. Matthew 6, storing up treasure. Jesus says, don't store up treasure for yourself. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, your heart is so close to your money. And they're so connected. And if you have a new heart, and if you've been transformed by the gospel, you will want to honor the Lord with your wealth. You will want to store up for yourselves. This is a good foundation for the future because they're not going to be rich in the next age. They're rich in this present age. And then I love how he concludes, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Just being rich and having everything you want. We say, oh man, I'm living. That's not living. That's not truly life. We are to take hold of that which is truly life. Some of us are holding so tightly on money and money is holding on to us that we can't take hold of the eternal life. I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm just saying that you are not living the way you could be living, experiencing eternal life now because you're holding on to this. You need to let go of this and hold on to eternal life. This new thing around the Duncan House the last couple of weeks is, is, is everything, everything needs to happen in a piggyback. That if... if my sons are moving from one room to the other, whether it be from play time to the dining room table or up to, up to the bedroom or anything like that. It's, it's can I have a piggyback, Dad? And uh, if one kid gets a piggyback, then all, all three of them who are old enough right now want a piggyback too. And I am as weak as I look, okay? Don't, <laughs> don't try to assume. 
And uh, there are times in which, you know, Ezra gets on, he's seven, and then Jet, who's a very large for his five years old, and then Abel, who's three, and they all get on me. And, and I remember being so sore one day and trying to figure out, why am I, like, all achy? Am I coming down with something? I realized, no, I piggybacked all three of them the other day. And I'm learning. I can't hold all of them all at once. And so now I just do piggybacks just one at a time, back and, back and forth. It takes us a lot longer to get there, but everyone's happy. And dad can walk. So you, you've got to choose what am I going to hold on to and what am I going to let hold on to me. And we need to take our money and say to God, you hold this. And then you tell him, I'm going to hold you. And to never let go and don't let anything stop you from taking hold of the eternal life that you've been given. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this passage has talked about ruin and destruction, about pangs and pain that comes upon us when we get trapped in the temptation of loving money. Father, I pray right now that those who are feeling that pain God, I pray that they would be reminded that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you are faithful to forgive. And God, I pray that you would allow all of us, Lord, to take steps of faith closer to you. And God, I pray that you would do a good work in all of our hearts. And God, I thank you that you can take something that has been ruined and has been destroyed and you can take someone who feels completely trapped and you can set them free and you can rebuild what's been broken and I pray that you would do that by your grace. And God, I pray that you would raise up here at this church, Lord, a group of people who are rich in good works, who are generous and who are, who are ready to give, Lord. And God, I pray that we would all take a, take a look at what is coming in and what is going out and how we're relating to our money and our debt and all of these things and that we would position ourselves to be ready to give, Lord, so that we could take hold of eternal life so that money would not have a hold on us, God. We let go of all we have, God, because we want to have all of you. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.